2: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Faye Garland at the University of Manchester and Dr. Mitchell Travis from the University of Leeds. We're here to talk about their book today, Intersex Embodiment, Legal Frameworks Beyond Identity and Disorder, and it was published by Bristol University Press in 2023, so it's brand new. Faye and Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. It's my pleasure. Now, just to get us both to get us started, I'm wondering if you can first tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you came to write Intersex Embodiment, Legal Frameworks Beyond Identity and Disorder.
0: Gosh. <laughs> there was a long lead-in to writing this book. Um, so Mitch and I started working together, what about 12 years ago? And while we were early career researchers at Exeter, we put together a module and mitch um, invited a local intersex organization and offer, uh to give a presentation on on issues affecting the intersex community and from that we put together a small grant funded by the slsa and then that tiny grant has just i think spiraled into something very big and quite nebulous um, and we started to work on lots of different projects um that we brought together under the book
1: yeah so is it, 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 we like you say, we, we started working together on the same day in 2011, we were at the same job interviews and we shared an office for the first two years. Um, but then yeah, the 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 SLSA grant helped us to interview 16 intersex people throughout the world about their perspectives on, on law and intersex. Um, and then it took us a long time to get that data out for various reasons. I think we had three children between getting that grant, not together, separately. um getting the grant and and publishing some of that data and like i said it's just run and run when we were were talking to insects organizations uh, before we wrote the grant it 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 felt like we had a lot to offer here in terms of our legal expertise it seemed like that was missing from the conversation um and so we we kind of figured that there would be like impact potential from this but i think we've been surprised by how much that's been the case
0: yeah and 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 again, also when we began, there was it was a real pivotal moment in terms of the way that law was beginning to engage with this area. So we really came at a time where we started to see a huge amount of legal reform. I think really from the moment we started writing the grant, it, it just seemed to like spiral. So a lot of what we've been doing has been, I guess, at the cutting edge of some of that legal reform, hasn't we have been tracing that impact and that, that story over the past sort of 10 years or
1: so? Yeah, I think we've we've ridden the wave, haven't we, of legal reform a little bit? Yeah, uh, it's been cool.
2: Yeah, but it's super interesting and really important work. Like to be honest, before your book, I hadn't come across anything written about intersex. Um, I don't know. Maybe you want to tell me a little bit about the law and reform process and how you were part of that.
1: Do you think it's helpful to tell a little bit about what intersex is? Yes, that would be great, great actually. Yeah, yeah. Um. So intersex variations are people who are born with um chromosomal hormonal uh, or genetic patterns that put them outside of the typical categories of male or female so maybe at or at the intersection of those two categories um they're congenital variation so it's not an identity that you can become it's something that happens uh, within a person's body you know from from when they're born something they're born with um and then, and then, but it's picked up at different stages. So sometimes it'll be picked up in at birth because there'll be atypical uh, genital variations or sex characteristics, and they'll be picked up quite quickly. But then we, we speak to people regularly who find out in their, you know, mid to late thirties who are who, who want children, and they they go to their doctors and they say, well, how come how come I'm trying and trying, um, and the doctor says, well, you you don't have a uterus for example you know um so th- that's kind of what intersex is and that might be helpful in terms of grounding some of this stuff
2: yeah that's super helpful um and so I know we're going to go into detail on this but one of the key ideas that does come through in the book has been the role that medicine has played in identifying cataloging cataloging and understanding in the intersex experience and I think that sort of picks up on what you just hinted at that intersex can be picked up at all different t- stages through a person's life. But it is, it does sound like there's, you know, real prominence in terms of medical diagnosis and expertise. So perhaps you can tell me a little bit about that.
0: There's a, quite, there's a really long history of um, medical dominance in this area that sort of stems from the Victorian era, um, and particularly taking hold along with kind of medical advancements in... Diagnoses and the sorts of like surgical interventions and hormonal interventions that could be provided really in the mid, um, 20th century, and accompanying that there was um work by Professor John Money on um the way that gender identity develops, that really entrenched this kind of medical understanding of intersex and this medical I guess regulation of um of intersex bodies, um, but the re- the result of that has been a kind of social erasure of of intersex in a variety of different capacities you know a social erasure in terms of everyday understandings um but also an erasure from legislative frameworks as well so there was legal recognition of intersex variations and in intersex people but as kind of medicine has really co-opted this um, uh, uh, and intervened in a variety of ways, we've just seen that sort of dis- disappear from any form of so- sort of social legal consciousness.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's worth thinking about that that 19th century history of medicine uh, in terms of, Alice, Alice Drager talks about this in her book, um, but one of the things that medicine was trying to do was prevent same-sex relationships, that's what it was hot on, that's what it was trying to prevent. And that was where some of the impetus came to really regulate this sphere, but to do it through medicine, but the, the moral imperative was there. And also to ensure that there was correct gender relations, right, because, so, you know, jobs and inheritance, all of these things at that time are dictated by gender. So the, the medical impetus in this area came from this really clear separation of sex and gender. And so it's funny then to watch that play out again and again and again, through to where like Faye's talking about medicine in the 50s with with John Money uh, and the John Hopkins Center in the US. Again, all of this is is playing out over and over again. And, and to some extent still playing out now. I know the reason that Faye says there's an erasure there is because what happens, uh, it, from the nineteenth century, twenties, thirties, uh, sorry, of the twentieth century, people start to say, "Well, these people can be put into a true category of sex. They can be. They, we don't have a middle sex. We don't have a, an intersex. These people are male or female, and we can place them into the binary. And we can do that through medical intervention." And so that is where the erasure comes from, because when they're talking to parents in the 50s through to probably the 90s, maybe even a little bit later, and maybe now still actually, uh, they're saying, we, you know, your, your child is a boy or a girl, and you, they just need to be finished in these certain ways through these surgical procedures, and then they will be quote unquote normal. And so then you lose these people because they, they're, they're fixed and they're kicked out of the you know, the healthcare system, and you don't necessarily see them again. Um, and But they don't know they're intersex, or their parents don't know they're intersex, because it wasn't explained to them in those terms. So that's why we've seen that Really latent uh, political consciousness and organising around intersex because, like they said, they've been erased.
2: Can you tell me a little bit more about this political consciousness and the sort of politics surrounding intersex?
1: Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> yes, uh, yeah, that- I mean, so in the in the nineteen nineties, we start to see this shift towards organising around intersex um, in a in a real. Uh, in, in a real organized way, right? So you have Interact, I think, there was it Interact? ISNA, sorry, the Intersex Society of North America in the US in the 1990s, organized around someone called Bola who sent a letter, I think to Nature, in response to something they published to say, we're organizing this thing. It might have been called hermaphrodites with attitude before that, but it went on to become ISNA. And a lot of uh consciousness was built around that so people became involved with the movement through that and they became involved through um all, all over the world right so you still at that point they're using vhs and letters maybe the early uh parts of the the internet to start organizing but that's when this people start to come together and they're like this experience chimes with what has happened to me i would like to be involved in that um, but I mean, that's its own history. We don't touch upon that much in the book, but there, there tends to be quite a unitary picture of that. But it, that, I think in some senses was also a little bit divisive amongst the community about how that was read because they had really clear links with, we do speak about this in the book, really clear links with LGBT organizations, but were at the same time trying to maintain some semblance of a relationship with medical doctors. And they, I think they found treading that line quite difficult. Uh, which is eventually what led to them finishing and becoming uh, the accord alliance, which is quite a medical focus.
2: And then, so I'm really interested in um, the methodology used for your book, because it is such an unusual topic. And i I mean, my sort of, my assumption is that it would be really difficult to get access to the information, especially if there is a limit on sort of the way that people are organized. So maybe you can tell me
0: about your methodologies. So, Yeah, we. I mean, uh, method. Yeah, it's a difficult. um, It's a difficult area through which to conduct research. Um, We used empirical methodology, and on a first project that was quite simple, really, in the sense that we were asking people to speak with us who were already um, outspoken and making, um, uh, um, uh, you know speaking with pol- uh, politicians coming out making reports to media so they were quite willing to engage in a in a public way and speak with researchers um with our study on malta which was a much more in-depth exploration into the impact of specific form of legislation mm-hmm. to and speaking to individuals with intersex traits is actually very difficult um, and wasn't it was a suitable hurdle that we came across. Um, uh, there are multiple reasons that go into that, but you know, essentially it's a very stigmatized um, uh, area. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of not wanting to come out and speak to people and tell people your story. So I think it is a specific form of methodological challenge in any researcher trying to build knowledge um, and understanding in this um, in this area. Um, I mean yeah,
1: and was, and we, we had to swallow a lot of pride here as mm. well and we talk about this in the book actually and it's the part that everyone seems to really resonate with this journey that we went on because we were we were young you know we were both of us kind of two years or a year out of our PhDs new area um and we were looking at x markers because that's what really mm. was big at the time so Australia it, had that, these that x was x a political
0: Controversy, wasn't it? That was a political hot topic.
1: Yeah, Germany had just uh, created this sort of blank space for for children born intersex. And we were like, yeah, we've got this money from the Socio Legal Studies Association and this is what we're going to study and it's going to be so cool. So we went to the first couple, I and mean, we had this all signed off by a couple of intersex people in the UK, but we went to some activists, uh, international activists worldwide and said, would you mind participating in this study? It's going to be really great. And they were like, no. And we were like, oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a bit of a shame. And they were like, yeah, how how dare you come and speak to us about X markers when the real problems that our community face are around uh, non-therapeutic surgical interventions? So how, how dare you frame this completely in this way? So we were like, oh, um, well, we could you know we thought <laughs> that when we did the interviews that other things might come up and we're not we're not adverse to that you know we're really happy to that and they said no by framing it in this way that you have around x markers you're not focusing on the kind of uh topics that we want to we, we want to prioritize it's a really dangerous thing to do and we won't speak to you and that was a real shock to us and i think we had to be we had to be a lot more humble than we were. We had to do a lot of learning. We had to go back to the drawing board. We had to go back to the SLSA and say, "Can we change the title and the focus of this?" Yeah and we there went was a lot back. of
0: self, there was a lot of self-reflection, I think it, well it's a, it's self-reflection is a continual part of being a researcher I think, but particularly in those early years, a lot of self-reflection about what also what we were trying to do with the project as well because I think there's a tension. Between your role as a researcher and your employment as being a, a lecturer, who also is under you know contractual obligations to get research out and things like that, and um, d- doing research with or I guess I mean started on really um a, a marginalised, very vulnerable um community, and I think that we had to really think about our motivations behind that and be quite honest about it, um, and a lot of the work that we've produced has been through um the support that we've had from um intersex communities i think um there's been a lot of patient people with us <laughs> who who've actually taken time to really do the work of educating us um and do that labor for free essentially um and i think we're quite indebted to to the people who've really um called us out on some of the intellectual um like showboating, I guess, that, that researchers can fall into the trap of, into the trap of doing. Um, so methodologically, I mean, increasingly, so Mitch and I've been putting together other grants and other projects and, you know, that idea of this ethics of care, this, um, idea of centering projects around, um, the participants who you're working with has becoming increasingly important in the work that we're doing. Um, so I, I guess that's really at the centre of the way that we are, we approach the things that we're doing now about we try to do things in partnership for the benefit of um, the communities that we're working with.
1: I think that's right. And I think that moment is, is central from when we moved from wor- working like on a community to working with a community. And it has just completely shifted our praxis, the way we operate, the way we integrate things, the way that we will take our ideas to those communities and trial them out with them before we do the research and but that but that pays dividends right because we we just had a book review from from an activist and an academic who who worked together a review um and they said like they see themselves in that research it's empowering to them because they they it, it, it reflected the ideas that they wanted to see um, and that they wanted to see spoken about, and then people come to us with new ideas and say, "Well, now you should look at this." And so the research has become kind of self-perpetuating in a way, um, mm-hmm. because we we are, you know, it's circular. We we take the research back to those communities and say, "Look, I hope this is helpful to you in your struggle. You can take this to policymakers, and we can take it to policymakers." And they say, "That is helpful. What do we do next?" And we say, oh, Let's talk about it. So, yeah, this research has been super fruitful and we have published a lot now and we'll continue to publish. We've got no plans to stop, have we? But, yeah. Sounds like a
2: a a... threat, Mitch. That's such a refreshing and humbling story. It's so interesting because, I mean, I think as academics, like it's so easy to lose sight of the purpose of the work that we're doing, you know actually getting it out of the ivory tower and empowering the people that you're working with um, and actually having meaningful impact is like so important.
1: Yeah, and it's, but it's something that I I see or I would look for now if I was doing reviews where people are like, I, I come from this kind of like, not to donk on any particular methodology, but like queer theoretical background, like intersex people, they rupture the kind of intellectual boundaries between male and female. And then I'd be like, well, if you actually speak to intersex people, quite a lot of them don't want to do that. And, they want to, I, they like I it. think that,
0: that ivory tower ness of, I mean, you know, the, there is, of course, importance in, 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 in reflection and those sorts of bigger questions, but the, the ivory tower nature, I think, of research has created a lot of mistrust from Mm. lots of different communities and and that certainly when particularly when we were starting out that was certainly something that we came up against this real kind of um um distrust of big powerful institutions within which researchers are working you know so all, all of that um also has an impact on the quality of research that you can produce if you can't access individuals speak with individuals because of this very apparent power dynamic um that is going to inevitably impact the, the quality of research that, that you produce and so that uh, we this, that was part of our learning curve and again part of our um i guess our broader methodology
1: but i think it's, it's funny as well like talking about this stuff and looking back on it this isn't about the book really it's about the whole journey but Um, I remember publishing this piece in 2018. It was the first piece out of the 2013 study. And we, you know, put it online and we were like, we're so pleased with this. And all of the participants that we spoke to didn't think that intersex should be equated with non-binary. They were just super clear on that. It's something that they didn't like. And of course, as soon as we put that out there, people started to contact me particularly, I think through social media to say, well, I'm intersex and I do identify as non-binary. So how dare you leave my experience out of your data? And we were like, we were looking for people we were desperate to interview people like you it would have been so great to be in contact and that's that's again about building your like rapport with the wider community when it's out there and so the book i think reflects that a little bit more where we're like you know we're not so down on on that equation it just doesn't always work and particularly it doesn't work in law um but still leaving open the the idea that people can have that experience sorry Um...
0: I think also just being honest about the limitations of your own research as well. You know, we 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 know a lot about law and law's understanding of intersex, but we certainly don't speak at all for intersex lived experience and we're not by any means have any shape of expertise on what it actually means to live your life um with intersex variations um but also you know gets you gets you thinking about the importance of like how you frame your your research the importance of words the importance of like titles you know sometimes the title doesn't feel weighty on research grants but actually all of that sends out a, a message about how you understand a particular ph- phenomenon and where you might align yourself and i think you know i i I think we think very, very carefully now about the words, the, the words we use. Um, you know, we have a lot of discussion over what particular terminology we use because we don't want to alienate anyone, but yet we need some terminology to be able to express an idea.
1: And the, the book starts and ends mm. there, right? Mm. Because we umdenard over using the term intersex in the title, because there's a couple of other contenders, right? So if you're coming from a medical standpoint which both medical professionals, but also some intersex people are, they see themselves in this like medical framework. You might use the term disorders of sex development. You might use the slightly more open term differences of sex development, but DSDs. Um, people who are coming from a more kind of LGBT background who don't identify necessarily with that medical pathologization, in part perhaps because of the mistrust of medical institutions themselves might prefer the term intersex or more recently um, the, there's a term variations in sex characteristics which is a lot more open um, but perhaps hasn't got the um The the salience at the academic level, like we publish a book called Variations of Sex Characteristics, which actually Lee May Lau has and it's a great book, but, but will it get the kind of pick up in trade, I guess, of people who are like, I understand at least what that is a little bit and so I will pick that up. So The book kind of starts there with okay, well, these are the different terms that are in use, and and where do we sit with that, and why are we using those different terms? But then it also ends with that, where we take you through these kind of epistemological framings, right? Where different institutions, whether that's medicine or law or psychosocial care, step up intersex in different ways. And then intersex people see themselves through those lenses and experience their intersex variations through those lenses. And that doesn't mean, you know, like Faith says, we don't speak for those people lived experience. We can't talk to that. But it doesn't mean we can't criticise the epistemologies on which they're based, right? It doesn't mean that we can't say, well, actually, these framings aren't helpful. Um, and we and we end up like not necessarily privileging any of them, I think, but just trying to see them as like multiple and how when you move into these different institutional spaces, you might talk in one register. Like if you're talking to your doctor, you might use the, the name of your intersex trait or your sex variation. But when you're talking about the kind of rights that you'd like to see from your government, you talk in terms of intersex because it's easier for them to understand. Like there's there's slippage between all of these terms
2: yeah, I really liked um the nuances that came out in your book. um that it doesn't, you know the terms and the terminology doesn't feel really settled. Um, and there's so much that can sort of be read into it. And as you say, from sort of different perspectives, from like a medical perspective, from a legal perspective, um, you know, from embodiment as well, like it was that was really fascinating. I want to talk a little bit more more about the terminology. The second chapter, medical embodiment, intersex as disorder. So can you tell me about disorder in this context? Because I think it's really interesting.
0: I mean, simply that, um, that medical terminology has been used to diagnose um, intersex variations, present them as a disease um, or disorder that is in need of fixing and that can be fixed and that there are certain types of interventions that um, can be, um, you know, like surgeries and hormonal therapies that can be used in order to to fix it. Um, Disease and disorder, those languages and those words and terminologies are usually the first way in which an individual encounters their intersex variations, you know, with medical and professional talking about a disease, talking about a very specific type of diagnosis, um, uh, And in some ways, that can make it quite difficult in terms of mobilising the community as well, because certain terminology that you might have over a particular diagnosis, an individual might not realise that that is included within within the intersex umbrella.
1: It's also really powerful to parents, right? So parents are going to be the first people who pick up on their child's intersex variation in lots of circumstances. And so if the doctor says, I can fix your child using these non-therapeutic surgical interventions and they will be normal and they won't be bullied and they will have a lovely, normal life. Parents are just, of course, they would go down that route. They they think it's in the best interest of their child. Um, And so they are pressured into going along with these elective surgeries and consenting on their child's behalf um and and so this this disorder narrative it just has such power in this context because it is the first it's the first epistemology like right? the first institution that parents and children will be will come up against
0: so we we did a freedom of information request request um a few years back with um a couple other scholars um and we found like the first meeting they have with the medical team is usually led by um a pediatric urologist or a pediatric pediatric surgeon. So already you know that even you know how those discussions are going to be framed. And there's some psychological research. I can't remember the name of the author, Mitch you much better with names than I am. Um that showed actually if you frame something as medicalized, um, individuals are much more likely to protect to um select medical responses in order to cure, to cure it so that you know it really has a profound impact on um the shape of that individual's life going forward
1: yeah that's truly is the name of the order truly
2: yeah i mean i can imagine a doctor coming to you and sort of presenting that your child is inherently flawed in some way the parents like exactly your sort of knee-jerk response is well how do we fix this
1: yeah um yeah and you think about, it, like, childbirth in particular, it's a traumatic time anyway. You've got no sleep. You know, there's other, other potential complications with the, the mother's body and the dad's pretty freaked out anyway. When you add something like this into the mix, parents yeah. go through a kind of grieving process. That's how they describe it when you ask them. Um, sorry. That's where there's
0: the importance of psychosocial... Of- talking you know the the importance of talking and supporting parents through the talking and I think I mean I think parents have a really interesting role here because it's sometimes it's it's more complicated perhaps than just being led down this path of medical interventions but you know we've had ad hoc discussions, haven't we, about medical professionals seeing parents and parents saying, I'm not taking my child home looking like that. There is also this kind of emotional pressure. I think we talk about this idea of um, a social emergency as well that, you know, that medicine is involved with, which perhaps intensifies or increases the likelihood of talking about this as a disorder that needs fixing and needs fixing quickly to remedy this potentially broken family unit.
1: And, and that's you know, the social emergency, right, stems from a culture that doesn't recognize the space between male and female. So when you say and it just doesn't understand it, like we don't have the, the tools to discuss it. So the first question is still is it a boy or a girl before you, we before we know the name before we know anything it's still this super gendered binary that parents are presented with that just places it must place enormous pressure on them like we, we we don't shy away from that we feel for these parents difficult situation
2: so then i guess my next question i think this is um a theme that sort of comes through in the book it's about laws power to disrupt these sort of binaries and these categories so perhaps you can comment on this a little bit, like what is the role, of like what can law do in this space?
1: So I, I'm, I'm going to start this and then you can, you can answer properly. We did a international book launch and uh, two of the speakers were Sharon Preeves and Morgan Carpenter. Sharon Preeves is a sociologist at Hamline University in the US. Uh, Morgan Carpenter is a uh, PhD student and now I think research assistant uh, in Sydney University in the bioethics department, but he's also the chair of Intersex Human Rights Australia. And they both said that we gave law not enough... uh, uh, Credit. Yeah, we didn't (laughs) give enough credit for what it could achieve Um, and that we were quite harsh on law. And, you know, I, I think that might probably be the case, but I think it stems from coming from a law background where we're we're just inherently critical of law, I guess. That's what we're associate with scholars. I feel like that's what we're kind of trained to do is to bash the law. Maybe um, we're
0: grieving as well, Mitch. Maybe we've been taught as law students that the law is the answer to everything. And our whole career has been about how it's not really lived up to the expectations we had we were 18, 19, 20. So we're, we're really... We need to go into therapy with law, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you know, I mean, this study in Malta, I think has has been quite revealing in terms of thinking about the utility of law. So when we wrote about Malta in the book, it was very early days. We only um, had a couple respondents at that point, um, but now we sort of completed the project and we've got a few more respondents. None of them are intersex for lots of different reasons. That we found that quite difficult finding Maltese intersex people. So the pinch of salt is our reflections here are from the attitudes of healthcare practitioners and um, policy makers. But so Malta introduced this amazing legislative reform, so groundbreaking. Um, it was like celebrated globally, celebrated within activist communities and academic communities. But when we actually start to do these interviews with policy makers and healthcare practitioners who, some of which were very closely involved with legal reform in Malta and further implementation, um, law hasn't changed anything, it seems. Um, there's more political consciousness, but there isn't a growing capacity or um, community of intersex people in Malta. There isn't greater cultural visibility. Um, There is infighting, I think, over what is and what isn't intersex. It doesn't seem to have changed medical practice as such. And so, in that sense, at like kind of a micro, I guess, a micro state level, there are questions there about what law can do on its own if it doesn't have the buy in and support and resources from other different types of mechanisms that you need to get social change. But on the other hand, the Maltese legislation, as a result of that, we're now seeing across Europe, in particular Europe, but not just Europe. Um, um, so like Kenya's got some law reform um, coming in. You know, we've, got, we've got all of these different um countries beginning to introduce legal prohibitions. And so on that like massive macro international scale, uh, you know, it's had it's actually had a really big impact on political consciousness um, mm. and political visibility. So I think law can do something, but I'm reluctant or or I'm not convinced by the extent to which it can change this area. You've got, you know, a century of very entrenched medical narrative here, and medical responses, and a lack of resources to support. You, you don't have any, like, bottom-up support or resources going on. And I, so I I don't think law can really disrupt um some of those binary assumptions without something else going on in a bigger sense across society
1: so uh, this is this is it's an interesting i was just thinking then as you were talking about the type of research this is right so that, you know in universities like we want challenge led research this this is challenge led research we are led by the problems that the intersex community face right and that presents challenges but it also presents opportunities for us as scholars because I can't sit here and say like I'm a medical negligence lawyer all that I do is look at medical negligence in this one or different context and tell you about medical negligence if they need a criminal lawyer or a family lawyer or a medical lawyer that that is what we then have to offer right because this we we were constantly moving with the with the goals of this diff, of this of these different communities and so what I think now we're interested in and this this is I guess the point is that we're shifting our focus towards the kind of afterlives of law or afterlives of legislation so what are the effects culturally legally medically and it's a shift in focus from okay right now we've introduced legislation well what happens next and that isn't something that we've necessarily done previously
0: it's, it's sort of exploring the momentum of change post-law, isn't it? You know, and uh, Malta is a very specific experience. Um, and we're, what, seven, eight years on in the broad scheme of things. That's still not a massive amount of time, even though, it, you know, in terms of like tracing social change. Um, but it's trying to think about it, how to keep that momentum going. And I think there's something about law. It takes so much energy to pass a piece of legislation, so much fighting to pass pieces of leg- legislation. I, I, I think that legislation can sometimes bring an end to some of that political men- momentum and that political, that political drive. Um, but I get, and that's perfectly relatable, isn't it? You finish a massive research project, and then you've got to start thinking about, you know, your impact activities that you're being asked to do, and you're like, oh, I've done the project. I've done all the work, you know. So I, I think there's something there about. Um, what we do after law and the story after legislation and how we continue momentum. Um,
1: I think that is part of it is about having systems of accountability that are in place to make sure that those things are implemented effectively, that they do have the kind of desired social changes that you want to see. Um, And I think that's what we've been dissatisfied with in Malta, that there hasn't been that kind of pressure on the government to deliver here um because they they don't have a visible intersex organization that's kind of a national organization that's that's calling them out on this they do have some really great lgbt organizations but um yeah so so yeah the, the research for us is shifting and it's shifting now um but it you know keeps us keeps us interested so so in terms of what can law do i think it can do stuff but that process is slow it's not uh, you know it's not necessarily about just legislation it's about tracing the effects of post-legislation and keeping the pressure on afterwards which maybe involves you know maybe it involves international law and NGOs and and again working in a slightly different register to ones that we're used to.
0: Yeah and how it sparks off like public conversations and I think in Malta those public conversations haven't happened yet um so the the passage of law, and you know, we haven't had a test case. Like even in the UK, we haven't had a test case. But you know, it's the media and it's the it's the energy that surrounds those kind of like public mechanisms through which law is done. I think that really has the biggest impact on um on lived experience, or the biggest potential, I should say. So then I guess my
2: question is reflecting on the sort of limits of leg- of change broadly from the legislative reform in Malta are there any lessons we can sort of draw from this example that might be applicable more broadly to other jurisdictions?
1: Uh, you have to get medical buy-in I think that is so so essential that you you have to Turn medical professionals to your way of thinking about intersex people and about social change. Make them see the worth of what you're talking about, because otherwise, it seems that it's not that they'll find loopholes. It's in some some in some instances, it's just that they don't think these types of human rights laws apply to them. Like what this, they, they just don't speak to each other. The scale differences between international law and your average medical doctor just don't speak to one another so having the buy-in of medical professionals as a you know professional organization through the sort of co-option of individuals I think is really really helpful to making this a success it's not the only way but I think it really helps speed up that process of change and success
0: yeah, uh, yeah, and I I think Mitch's point there about medical buying medical buying is different from medical dominance in the process. It, you know, it's 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 getting people on on board before change is implemented because most of the the stalling seems to come from where medical practitioners. Suddenly realize that they might be talking about their area of practice, but they didn't. They just weren't aware of this. And so, if there's a sense that it changes happened and conversations haven't happened with the right people, I think you get a lot of a lot of pushback, but also a lot of hostility as as you know, as well. You know, medical practitioners are human beings. There's a lot of defensiveness that goes on in this area. You know, I, medical practitioners I don't think want to think that they're hurting and perform you know performing interventions that amount to torture and degrading human um human uh um so I, I think there is a necessity to do that and in australia i think that's in new south wales they've just introduced a piece of legislation which isn't perfect by any means there's been a lot of compromise but the conversation of most of having now happened before that piece of legislation was introduced and you can really see the difference in what's been included in the act and what hasn't and you know we're waiting to see what happens in in australia as a bit as a result of this bit of legislation but i I feel like medical pushback won't be the issue here. There'll be other issues, but it, it you won't have that initial stalling before you can even get anything else done. So in, in Malta, they're having one or two, um, there, are, there are sort of one or two variations that are being disputed over whether or not they're intersex or not. As a result of that, everything else that they've agreed is intersex isn't benefiting from the legislation because it's entirely derailed, um, derailed the process. So like, working out what the derailment could be beforehand is really important to make sure you can get, it, get the rest in for everyone else and then talk out the, the nuances and the grey areas and the, the, the really difficult conversations. So sort of, I guess, my next question is
2: like blue sky thinking. If, you know, we could design this ideal legislation, get sort of medical buy-in, cultural buy-in, social education campaigns, you know, in an ideal world, should there be a, you know, third gender that recognizes intersex was that overly simplistic
1: I so it maybe maybe there's a couple of different ways to take that right yes. So one way would be to say that um if we if we had a category of uh, gender that was non-binary then lots of different people would take that up uh, non-binary yes. trans people might take that up, and some intersex people might take that up but I think it's really important to note that not all intersex people would take that up. They, you know, they would happily be male or female or intersex male, or intersex female, or, or whatever, but they, 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 I think we want to sort of decouple the idea of non-binary and intersex being synonymous because they're not, it's just two categories that sometimes overlap. So if we introduce non-binary, that's fine, but it's not necessarily a goal of the intersex movement but it might be for some individuals, so so maybe. Um, and then you know, could we then take that further and look at the work of people like Davina Cooper and Flora Renz to say, well, what happens if we get rid of the registration of sex and gender altogether? Like what happens if we just take that off birth certificates? What happens if we take that off, driving licenses and passports? Like what work does it do there? And what does it signal if it isn't there? so and their work on the future of legal gender is really really interesting um a massive non-answer to the question but i just think (laughs) um i I don't know whether that would then if, if we were kind of more comfortable with the idea that sex and gender doesn't really matter that much at least from the point of view of the documentation of the state then maybe that opens up a little bit more space for parents and children to have productive conversations with medical doctors and psychosocial uh therapists to say well you know maybe we could just leave it for a bit until the child is old enough to decide on their own gender identity we don't have to touch anything surgically while we wait um and then when they're old enough to to make sort of capacitous decisions here then they can choose surgery or not based on their preferences i
0: um i guess there is certainly a difference between adults and children and I guess if you get to a point where gender categories aren't important at all, then I guess it doesn't really matter whether or not you would have a th- a third op- optional. You know, it wouldn't be it w- wouldn't necessarily have the um, dramatic implications that um, that it has now. But I feel slightly cynical in whether that's entirely possible. Um, definitely agree with Mitch that you know. That um, gender markers should be available to intersex people in the way they should be available to everyone. That if you would like to use them, then use them and use it as a um, as a way to express your identity, but not to have it forced on you. But with with children, I think you have to be really careful about um, how you categorize them because if parents are afraid about what that categorization means, that's where you start to see responses that are might not necessarily have that individual
1: child's best interest at heart so and they're, so let's germany faye explain yeah. germany uh, so
0: germany what 2013 it brought in a law where you could have um you, you essentially have space on your birth certificate or your registration papers um where you if you had an intersex child or have, um their sex was ambiguous you didn't have to put a marker down on it since you can you can now put down a marker there's dispute over space and fall markers. But essentially what that led to was an outing of your child as being outside of the binary and parents didn't want that for their children Um, and as a result you saw an increase in people agreeing to surgeries, having surgeries so that their child could fall within the marker. So I think think we have to be extra careful with children extra, extra careful with children and thinking about how parents might respond to things and, and how that reflects broader attitudes to non-binary and LGBT and transphobia and homophobia. Because a lot of those, a lot of people who are fearful about their child being different stems from broader um, discrimination against what it means I, to be different.
1: I think that's right. So like, it's it's all very well for us to sit here and say stuff about third markers and how important they are. And I think that's right. And uh, and people are, you know, taking up that battle. Really great people are doing this work on this area. I don't think children should be at the forefront of that battle, the forefront of disrupting yeah. the gender binary. Unless they, you know, if they want to, that's yeah, fine yeah, My caveat is, is,
0: of course, not to stop them from it, you know, as they express themselves, but that it shouldn't be the adults it's, making that yeah. decision.
1: And it, should, it shouldn't be a mandatory category for intersex yeah. people. So I think that does place these kids in a really difficult position um, and at the front of a gender war for which they did not consent to be part of.
0: But, but then what you need then, though, is you need malleability, right? So if you are picking um, a letter, um, you need you need to be able to change that as the child's body change. You know, the child undergoes significant physical development in those first few early years but also again through puberty they don't really know the exact way in which a body is going to develop they can predict it but they don't really know so I think you need to have a system in place that also is able to change and, and, and allows that individual to um, to really reflect who they are.
1: Just a bit of flexibility which is yeah. what law is known for right that law loves flexibility and impermanence and indeterminacy that's what it really does well at. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So then I guess my next question
0: is, do you have any key takeaways from your book? Um, for me, I think, I think so doing the projects, so there's lots that you learn and lots that's revealed that you weren't expecting. So I've got a huge amount to say about Malta, huge amount um, that we learned from Engaging with the activists. But I think in terms of writing the book, I think it really was that self-reflection. And my favourite chapter that we wrote was, I think it's chapter, is it chapter two or chapter three on non-binary <laughs> And really critiquing academia's role in creating some of these myths around intersex. And I, I think that has been the biggest takeaway from the I feel like that has really changed the way that we're approaching different sorts of research projects now. Like positionality um, is right at, at the starting point of when we're thinking about how to design a next project.
1: I I really like, (laughs) I really like about my own book, I really like uh, the idea of contingency that's kind of built into the book. So if you are coming from or or engaging with a particular institution, it will frame intersex in different ways, right? So medical frame it as disorder. If you come from this LGBT perspective, you uh, identify it in this kind of like queer mode, non-binary might take it in this non-binary lens as well um and i think i like that in i like the idea of that being scalable and taking that to different projects where you could take a particular instance of embodiment and say the way that this is read and understood is contingent on the type of institution that it's engaging with um i just that for me that was kind of the one of the starting points of the project and I think we delivered that in a really nice and accessible way Um, and that's the thing and I think that we take that into the the next projects that we do is the kind of the contingency of this
2: yeah actually that's something I learned from reading your book um I do think that contingency is really transferable um I mean I was sort of reading it I do work in disability um and thinking about you know the different ways of embodiment, like from a medical perspective, from a legal perspective, and how this can change the way you do your research and the outputs of your research as well, and how you can work with communities.
1: Yeah, and you know, thinking about the way capacity would be read in different situations or by different institutions, and that that a lot of the conflicts could be read through these different institutional gazes, I guess.
2: Yeah, (laughs) so I've taken up a lot of your time today, both of you. Just before you go, can you tell me what are you working on now?
1: Are we allowed to say?
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so, um, so we are from the multi-project, we're writing out a couple articles articles um, that uh, really start to delve into what the findings mean in terms of um, law and social change. Um, And we are looking to put together some grants that maybe use Malta as a little bit of a pilot project and think more broadly about um, how law is, how it's been able to disrupt medical narratives in this sphere.
1: Yeah, we've also just uh, had a piece accepted in feminist legal studies, uh, which is about gender diverse children, but trans children more often than not. And some of the stuff that's happened to them since Bell and Tavistock, but reading this case, Bell and Tavistock, through a temporal lens, which, again, is about contingency, really, isn't it? And the way that we might understand these children's relationship with time and how that's read through different institutions.
0: And we came to that through... (laughs) Our focus on intersect. So originally, that article started off as like comparing intersex with gender diverse children and trying to unpick why we've got really different approaches in law, where one is seemingly pushing on surgeries and interventions when children can't consent, and the other seems to be pushing away from surgeries and interventions when you've got children who are um, and young adults who very clear on their sense of self um but then it ended up just being too big so we we learned into the gender diversity aspect yeah
1: but that's that's it's a nice piece that one I'm excited yeah. for
2: that to yeah I'll definitely look forward to reading it because I mean as I say I learned so much reading your book all about um obviously so much about intersex which is something I didn't know about but also these ideas about law and social change and how law can or the limits of law in terms of disrupting medical narratives. There's um, It was just, and you know, all the work you did on positionality and that really comes through. And um, I think, I do think it's a really transferable book for so many, um, so many scholars.
1: That's nice to hear. Thank
2: you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just to bring it to a close, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Dr. Faye Garland and Dr. Mitchell Travis and their book, is Intersex Embodiment, Legal Frameworks Beyond Identity and Disorder. Faye and Mitch, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, oh, thanks so for having us. us. That
2: was great. That was lovely. Oh, great.